like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. And uh, finally, after quite a time with technical difficulties on my side, I'm joined by Dan Hodgins. It's good to be here. <laughs> the very patient and flexible <laughs> Dan Hodgins. <laughs> we couldn't get his I could I couldn't get his sound to work so I'm glad we've got it figured out um so as as always when Dan's here we're gonna do a little bit of what the hell Correct. <laughs> we've got we've got a couple what the hell questions for you um I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and do the quote and then and then we'll jump in so this this quote is from a book called um oh no did I forget it already I know it's, t- <laughs> oh my God, what is wrong with me? Um, here it is. It's called The Power of Neurodiversity, Unleashing the Advantages of Your Differently Wired Brain, and it's by Thomas Armstrong. Um, it's, I'm only halfway through, full disclosure, but um, it's a challenging book. I think anyone who works with, um, with children... Uh, or adults, because it's really this book is really the whole yes. lifespan. But um, would benefit from from reading this different take um, on things like ADHD and autism. Um, but we're we're specifically going to be talking about ADHD stuff. So let me get to the quote here. Um, and and so Tom, Thomas Armstrong says that these kinds of labels attract negative thoughts and attributions from professionals, family, and others. And these individuals go through their lives saddled with low expectations. However, once we start to look more deeply into their lives, we begin to see new strengths or we begin to see strengths, talents, abilities, and intelligences shine through. This process of investigating the positive dimensions of people with negative labels can make a world of difference in helping them achieve success in life. Um, so I know that one of the things that when you and I were, were figuring out what this, what we were going to record about was just the idea that ADHD is over labeled, like pe- pe- children are labeled too often and often informally 
with yes. having ADHD and that can impact how we go forward with those children. Um, but I, I sort of wanted to start by acknowledging that it is a real, you know, some children really do need some of these supports sure. that would benefit them. Um, and so overdiagnosing also does those children a disservice. Yes. Um, Heather, so, I went, the reason I started thinking about this is I went to my family physician for my annual six month checkup, you know, where they tell you you're overweight and you need a colonoscopy and all those fun things that you do every year. <laughs> and I say, no. <laughs> <laughs> she had indicated to me that um, she had received more requests from parents on medicating their children for their activity level. And it got me thinking, of course, I don't have any research uh, to back this currently in terms of what she's stating. Uh, but it, it got to me that, you know, most parents or people who are caring for children in their home uh, don't spend 24 hours a day uh, with their child and therefore uh, might not know the activity level that that child has. Mm. So I'm wondering whether or not during this time when everybody's supposedly at home and and doing things that isn't as natural for them, whether or not that might be a, a true strict statement, because I think the same thing happens in early childhood settings. Uh -huh. When we have this image that um, children are supposed to be, whatever that be is, uh, in, in particular levels of, of um, activity level, and when they're not, um, then it is often um, moved into getting some sort of assessment mm -hmm. for that child. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about, I, had, I hadn't thought about parents being home with their children for longer periods of the time now while we're all sort of still uh, quarantining or a lot of us are still uh, isolating ourselves. Um, but yeah, if you've just never really been part of that part of your child's day before and suddenly you're seeing uh, activity levels and things that normally would be happening uh, in childcare or at school and added the stress yes. that we're all going through, then that, that um, it doesn't surprise me to hear that your doctor said she's, or he or she is getting more, uh, yeah. more requests for that. But um, what's interesting to me is that um, sometimes we confuse what I consider to be the more active child, um, with the child who might have some disability mm -hmm. um, or special needs uh, category. So uh, a couple years ago, I just kind of surveyed Heather, uh, what kinds of assessment tools are used um, in early childhood, early elementary school to mm -hmm. assess whether or not a child has ADHD. And both that you and I agree that there are some children who really need support mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of their development of their needs. So we're not, um, you know, removing it altogether, uh, but we're looking at, so I looked at it and fidgets frequently is the number one um, yeah. category. And that would mean that I should be medicated immediately uh, because it's hard <laughs> for me to sit yeah. anywhere. <laughs> yes, I think, uh, I, you know, me too. I would be, I, I would hit all the things on the list probably yes. at some point, depending on the day you're looking at me. 
well, get the next one distracted easily. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, okay, so this kind of behavior, I think, describes over three-fourths of the children that we normally work with mm -hmm. in terms of whatever setting uh, we have. Um, so, and probably just as many adults uh, in that case. So I wonder whether or not the assessment tools are part of the um, the damage essentially mm. for getting um, children uh, mislabeled. Yeah, I um, uh, I think too, and I know that you've spoken about this before. Um, it's the it's the system that they're in, right? Like if we weren't expecting two, three, four year olds, five year olds to be sitting so much of the time and um, passively listening, or maybe they get to hold one thing to fidget with, then we wouldn't see the fidgeting and the law, right. you know, the distraction. Um, and, but we, we very rarely take an assessment to our own environment first or our own ex expectations first. We, um, we, we put that assessment on the shoulders of the child yes. and, and that's where all the changing has to, has to happen. And that's, that's where I get really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and I wonder too, if we're really going to take a look at whether or not a child has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, essentially, if we're really going to look at that, then the only way that I think that we can really assess naturally, organically, is if the child, like you indicated, is in an environment that allows him or her um, to be as active as they want mm -hmm. um, or to be as distracted as they want. The distraction could be I'm bored with what is being expected of me, not mm -hmm. that there's something wrong with me, or that I can't sit down for very long. Doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them. It means that they need to be up yeah. um, more. In terms. And so we really can't do a, a, an authentic assessment unless the child is in an environment that supports their individual needs. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that make sense? Yes, it does. And we can't, <laughs> we can't use that assessment tool um, really effectively if we don't have the basic understanding of typically where a child should be at that age anyway. So, and thinking about attention. So when I, um, uh, when I'm at the, at the speech language preschool and working with those grad students, one of the things that, comes up as goals for preschool children often on an IEP or, um, or you know, any kind of, of plan for their therapy is that they're going to increase their attention to non-preferred tasks. Yes. Um, which, if, if you don't know that for a four or five-year-old, really eight minutes is the top that yes. we should expect them to be able to stay on a good day with all their skills <laughs> intact um, to, to maintain attention to a non-preferred task. So then if we're running a 20 minute circle time and then that goes to another 20 minute group activity at the table and then a snack where they all have to sit together, um, then, then we've set them up to fail in terms of attention and um, sitting still and the fidgeting and all that. Uh, so we have a responsibility if we're going to even think about using that assessment with a child to really know what's typical and not just what doesn't fit our environment right now. Right. And then make some adjustment changes in whatever facility or curriculum 
that we're using to see whether or not that adjustment to support his or her individual needs um, changes the behavior of either the adult um, or, or the child. When I wrote the boy book, one of the concerns that I ha- that you and I have talked about before uh-huh. is the fact that there are so many male children um, who are identified. I mean, seven times more is what the, um, the research is suggesting. It's interesting, Heather, because the same number is in speech and language delayed mm-hmm. classes. Mm-hmm. So in one of the things that I often talk about, the very active child, the child whom often is labeled as the floater, um, <laughs> who moves from one experience to another. And I kind of look at being a floater as kind of exciting in terms of that <laughs> approach. Because yeah. it's almost like you're brailing the world, essentially. Um, yeah. Thinking about toddlers who, who do that frequently, because uh, I think it's even less than eight minutes. Uh, for <laughs> oh, definitely <laughs> for a toddler, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and I'm thinking if... Um, if you have a prancer, who, who I call a child, who, who does the pee-pee walk, if they're a male, because they're <laughs> holding onto the penis and jumping around. Kind of yes. Uh, that's an indication that he might have to go to the bathroom. At the same time, he better do it quick <laughs> in terms of that approach. Not that there's something necessarily uh, wrong uh, with the child. So what I find when I go visit programs is frequently there are more um, areas of the space that are conducive to sitting down mm. or staying still um, versus spaces that give the child the opportunity to move frequently. Yeah. And I, I think, um, so I'm noticed, I noticed this in a couple of conversations with, um, with students in the uh, behavior guidance class that I was teaching um, this summer that we we talked a lot about looking at your environment instead yes. of instead of going first to what do I need to change about the child looking at your environment first and um you know you did a video interview for the class and Lisa Murphy yes. did one and they they heard all of that and they liked it um but then as we had conversations they we were we I was hearing things like <clears throat> excuse me well I have um you know some boys who just really require all of my attention so i'm thinking about adding a calming center to my environment and <laughs> and so then the conversation would be okay that's wonderful if you want to have that in your environment but if they're running and being active then that's the need that you need to look yeah. into you know how can i make it okay to do that in my environment not how can i do something new to my environment to try and stop this behavior yes. it's how can i fix this so that their needs are met and um so, so I think we, we talk a lot in the field about changing the environment, but we aren't going deep enough with it. We, we think still in terms of quick fixes and stopping quote unquote misbehavior instead of really meeting needs with the environment. Um, and I think for, for those active boys, that's especially difficult for a lot of people. Well, and then when you also look at the expulsion rate for male children versus female in this country is enormous in terms of boys yeah um, and frequently um, they're expelled often because of the movement level um, and swearing at the same time <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but sometimes when you're running you have to say hell a lot you know <laughs> it's a package <laughs> deal <laughs> right so i'm thinking you know that part of that is 
all connected in mm. terms of rather, like you indicated earlier, rather than let's um, cause the child to move in a fashion or attend to a fashion that I want mm-hmm. um, versus, well, I'm taking a look at this. Maybe I need to provide more climbing opportunities, mm-hmm. or maybe I need to provide less of uh, this type of um, corner um, or area. And maybe I really need to do a rough housing um, corner or something mm-hmm. of that sort that would support the practice and the observation that they've had mm-hmm. of the child rather than getting rid of him or her in terms of what, because they don't fit in. Right. Yeah. Or they, they require too much of our attention. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, so I had a, we had a, a boy in our preschool um, a while ago and uh, required a lot of sort of, he, he just wasn't one who was into group things. Um, he, um, he would much rather be off on his own doing his own thing. And so that's what he got to do. And um, so I finally had somebody who was working in the program with me say, well, why does, why does he get all the extra, um, you know, not attention, but uh, freedom? Yeah. I mean, it really was like, well, why does he get all the freedom? And I said, well, he's the one who needs it. The other ones are fine being with us when they need to, you know, during those times, like reading stories or having snack that, that we want them to be with us, but, but he needs to be able to say, no, that's not for me. Right. Um, and that was sort of confusing for them to hear too, because they weren't used to thinking in terms of quote unquote, making allowances. Right. Um, and I, the- think, I wonder sometimes Heather, if we, we, that if people plan experiences for the child who's not active, so, because it's easier in mm-hmm. some cases, and, and that's not a condemnation or a judgment. It, it's just taking a look at, you know, if I plan a particular experience and they can sit down and do it, then I feel better uh-huh. um, about myself. Uh-huh. Um, and rather than saying, okay, now that I've observed um, Eric, Carl, Sarah, <laughs> um, you know, now that I've observed and noticed that they need a lot of opportunity for movement. Um, and they are distracted frequently by what I have available, uh-huh. maybe I need to change that to yeah. support um, what it is that that child needs. And so sometimes the curriculum drives um, the experience provided rather than the observation. Mm. And that's yeah. why I worry sometimes, a lot of times, about lesson plans that have to be done so far ahead because they don't really pay attention that the child who needs to run a lot that uh-huh. day, and therefore you want to provide more opportunity the next day for, for running those kinds yeah. of things. It doesn't allow for the freedom sometimes to, to, to do that. So it, it's not a surprise to me that, that children might be mislabeled ADHD in an experience where um, that kind of thing is expected. Mm-hmm. And I think this conversation, particularly talking about, um, you know, teachers who are thinking about ADHD when they have um, sort of typically active preschool children, um, fits really well with your idea of finding what they're good at. And that's kind of what that Thomas Armstrong quote was getting at, too, is look, we have to look 
if we start to think in that way about the child or we're starting to wonder if this may be a thing, then we can, even if we have the diagnosis already somewhere, we can still be looking for what they're good at and what they need more of. And we don't have to limit ourselves and them to, um, you know, just behavior modification kinds of things. Um, Because they're, I mean, every human being has, well, most human beings have things that they're good at um, and deserve, deserve to be able to do. Um, That was a little mean, but (laughs) there's always an exception, but we don't want, it's it's like, once we get that label either in our heads or on the IEP or whatever piece of paper, um, it's so hard to get past it. Even if we want to call our approach strength-based, um, there's still always that deficit yes. rattling around guiding yeah. our decisions. And another thing that I looked at um, when I wrote the boy book is the areas of the country where uh, medication for uh, ADHD is more commonly used. Uh-huh. And what we, not only me, but what was found out by Michael Gurian and others is that those states that had uh, cold, uh, longer periods of time where uh, children might be prevented from going outside uh-huh. had a higher labeling of ADHD, which I find fascinating uh, because, uh, again, that attitude to me, if a child really needs to run and the space inside isn't conducive to that, then they need to be outside mm-hmm. more. <laughs> but some people have the attitude it's too cold to go out or um, it takes too long uh, to get them outdoors. And so frequently they're kept indoors mm-hmm. um, and still have that need for running. It's almost as if we say to ch- I've heard some adults say to children, uh, that's an outdoor activity. Oh, yeah especially if they're running or hiding underneath a table and, you know, or throwing a ball or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it frequently s- indicates to me that that experience needs to be provided more because like you said, they're good at it. Uh-huh. Um, so it was interesting to note the Midwest frequently uh, was the highest use of Ritalin in uh, other medications for ADHD and when you look at the Midwest, those are our cold states, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. It is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And Michael Gurian had done a lot of that uh, when he did the middle school and high school uh, students, uh, too. And I thought, this is, we really need to take a real look at what children need versus what I want. Oh, uh, yep. <laughs> uh, in terms of the approach. I know when I... My daughter lives in Tokyo, Japan, which is about a 14-hour nonstop flight. My wife would never sit next to me during that flight because <laughs> I'd be standing up in the aisle flapping my arms or doing something <laughs> because it just was too, I mean, the last three hours, it's absolutely hell uh-huh. for, for uh-huh. anybody, but especially for me. And I'm thinking the same thing needs to happen you know, with children is, is that opportunity to pay attention to what is needed mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of their experiences. Yeah. I, um, this summer, I also read uh, a book by Francis Wardle called, Oh Boy, Teaching Strategies mm-hmm. for, yeah. for Boys. And then yes. he, he's on, he was on the podcast. By the time this comes out, it will be like 
three weeks ago he was on the podcast. Um, but I, I was reading it and of course it was important because he had all the statistics to back up why we need to talk about boys in this way and right. you know how often they're misdiagnosed um, or overdiagnosed with ADHD and adjustments we could make to our classroom to allow for what those boys need. And as everything I read, I was like, but every child will benefit from this. Yes. So, so yes, it's important that we think about this in this specific context of um, ADHD or um, active boys being sort of a problem in early childhood classrooms, but every recommendation was, you know, it's individualizing, it's allowing for being outside as much as possible. And, um, uh, uh, allowing active play indoors and, and figuring out risk, all of that benefits every child in our classrooms or home. Absolutely. Um, so, so that while there is this very, you know, special population that, that this conversation is aimed towards or about, um, every child, every child. Yeah. Could, could you know, I'm sitting, I was, I love to go to concerts. So lately I've been kind of withdrawing for me yeah. because I, I can't go to them. <laughs> but whenever I go to a, a concert, especially a hip hop artist or something that sort on the stage, I turn to the person next to me and said, if that person was in a classroom, they would be medicated. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're jumping all over the stage. Yeah. And having a really great experience. Um, but because that's what they are like, right. uh, and they're really good at it. And I have a strong feeling that that's probably the way they always had been. And I yeah. keep wondering, sadly, whether or not they were misinterpreted um, yeah. as, as a child in terms of their um, experiences. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really valid wondering, because yeah. honestly, and you know, I'd I don't want to make too many overgeneralizations, but the reason that this ADHD diagnosis exists is because of school environment. So there's this one element of their life that's not quite working. And so, so we have to figure out a diagnosis and a treatment plan. Um, But that part, that one element of their life is so all encompassing for so many years that, um, I, I think we just, we just have, as always, we have responsibility to be really, really careful yes. about putting all of the burden of, of change and um, assimilation onto children instead of taking some of that on ourselves. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking right from the beginning, when the child entered the classroom, I used to have children that used to run in the classroom, you know, I can't talk to you right now. <laughs> and I'm thinking, all right. <laughs> I didn't want to talk to you anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, and so that you have those experience and rituals oh, yeah. that often interfere um, with um, what children's needs might be. Um, like sitting down at the snack table versus standing up, mm-hmm. uh, not on the table eating, but standing <laughs> up to eat. Uh-huh. Um, or, and again, that doesn't mean that the child's wandering around with food in their hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that I call it happy hour eating where you stand up and you eat a cracker and have some juice or beer. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, no, maybe not beer. Not, not probably <laughs> at the childcare. <laughs> but it's kind of that move where you go to yeah. some places that uh, encourage that kind of experience rather than um, the traditional experience of, you know, sitting down and, mm-hmm. and putting your hands in your lap and, and um, getting ready to eat kind of thing would not fit the prancer or right. the child who uh, really is more active. So, so perhaps if I had to, if I observed that child and noticed that behavior, then like you said earlier, and we both said, what could I do to make that different mm-hmm. and more successful uh, for that child? And then after we've tried all of that and we provided <laughs> an experience that's really supporting, then we can move into looking at whether or not there might need to be some special services mm-hmm. for any child yeah. in terms of that approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, absolutely. I'm not saying that no child ever needs any special oh, yeah. services right. or supports. Right. I'm just, there's so much that we need to think through before we jump to that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, I had one, uh, a friend whose son has ADHD and he's in elementary school now, but she's a, she described it as it's not so much that he can't pay attention. It's that he can't not pay attention uh. to everything that's going around him. So it's more like a focus um, for that one. Great but I know the, yeah, what? that's a great analogy. Yeah. That changed my thinking a little bit and changed how I thought about the environment. Not that I'm going to isolate a child and not have anything else around them, but, but thinking about it in that way. So just listening to other people's experiences can also help us figure out any environmental or personal adjustments we need to make um, for a child that we have these, these concerns or questions about. And this makes so much sense because we are taught, especially if we believe in developmentally appropriate practices, (laughs) that choices for children is absolutely essential. And I don't, I hope that nobody would disagree uh, (laughs) with that. Uh, But in sometimes that stimulation of all those choices might be okay for you or I or someone Mm -hmm. else, uh, a child in particular, but it might not be as appropriate uh, for a child who gets overstimulated mm-hmm. by that many choices yeah, and might need some assistance in, in looking at what's available. Right. Which, which is another, uh, another, you know, item on the scale on the side of observing and individualizing and being willing to change your practice for the child who needs that change. Um, yes. which is, a, I know that that's a, seems like a harder way to teach, but um, it's probably once you practice it and get into it easier <laughs> to, to, to go through your days with that because you're not fighting against children's instincts and development and nature so, so much once you start practicing that individualization and um, being willing to, to look for what they're good at and look at what their positives are and how can I f- sort of feed that and give them those opportunities, then overall your day is going to lighten up a little bit. Well, and I think, yeah. And and I think you're not going to go home thinking, what the hell happened today? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And not that those experiences will continue, but I I think it becomes easier Mm -hmm. if we start looking at what children need again Mm -hmm. and making sure that we provide those experiences that support those individualized Mm -hmm. education experiences. Um, it just becomes easier uh, in terms of planning, in terms of setting up. 
Um, and then we don't go home exhausted, um, mm -hmm. thinking that, um, you know, I need 14 bottles of wine to make it through the rest of the night kind of thing. That's so much wine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In terms of that. The other quick thing before I know we're, we're getting close yeah. to <laughs> is the fact that often children who are very, very active do not see the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. And I think my observation of children who really um, are distracted easily uh, frequently run into that experience is they, um, they, they might push someone down as they're running towards something, not because they're mean, but because they're running towards something <laughs> um, that they want. And yeah. so they don't necessarily see the consequence of pushing someone down to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and often those children, again, are mislabeled yeah. um, in terms of, uh, uh, of their natural experiences. And I think that uh, frequently that gets in the way. Yeah. Zero to three has a great graphic that I use a lot um, when I'm training, teaching adults about working with children that um, half of the graphic is like when parents typically think that children have gained impulse control and should be able to just listen and stop or obey or comply. And most, most parents in their surveys, you know, thought two. Um, and then the other side is the reality developmentally. They're just yes. sort of starting that yes. in the preschool yes. ages and they aren't going to master it um, until much later. And maybe that can tie into uh, Piaget's stages, you know, sure. um, uh, they're not ready to do that hypothetical thinking until closer to seven. And that's sort of what's required Sure. to think about what happens if I run too fast across this room and someone right. gets in my way. Um, but so, yeah, so that just kind of goes back to having really sound developmentally appropriate expectations for children and an understanding of, of what's going on at different ages you know, tied to then also knowing the individuals <laughs> and for using sure. all of that information together. Yes, definitely, for sure. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, Heather, yeah. when a parent comes in and says to a provider, um, I don't know what to do with him and, and maybe we should think about taking him and getting assessed. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, Perhaps if we change our response to that by saying he had such an exciting day today, he was running everywhere, mm -hmm. and um, it's what he needed to do. Yeah. I think that that relieves some anxiety from the parent rather than saying, oh, yeah, he's at that kind of day, too, right. and I've been watching him. And that. So I think part of it is, is our response mm -hmm. um, to a parent or guardian as is reflected in, in, in what a child really um, needs. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And that can be a difficult position. I'm thinking yeah. about a two-year-old that I was working with whose um, pediatrician had given mom uh, an, a checklist to, to look for indicators of ADHD. Oh, at no. two. But, <laughs> but the, the tool that the pediatrician gave mom to bring to me to complete said very clearly at the top that it was for three to five-year-olds. Ah. And so some, so it, I, I feel like parents also need to know it's okay to push back or to do more research or to yeah. talk to somebody rather than just saying, oh, my pediatrician thinks this is 
this is what I, what it is. So it must be what it is. Yes. Um, it, it, it's okay to advocate for your child. Um, and we can help just like you were talking about by giving yes. them some alternative language or different ways yes. to think about the behavior or just validating that, that it's an okay behavior. It's an okay way for four-year-olds to function <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> through yeah. their days. It's a big, it's a big topic. I feel like we could really go for a lot longer, but we probably well, shouldn't. <laughs> well, and I even think the mission statement needs to reflect, um, what we are going to provide for children, lots of opportunity for running, lots yeah. of opportunity for, but a lot of mission statements say, you know, uh, children will be learning through play and, and, and we're going to be doing the following kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what if we were to change it to what it is that we see that children need again? Um, and then, then it says to people who are bringing children to us, my child is okay. This is the mm -hmm. kind of thing he or she needs to yeah. do. And, and, oh, wow. That's, uh, and my child is just like any other yeah. uh, child in terms of their behaviors. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking, cause I always do, like I take pictures of the children playing and it goes on mm -hmm. a little bulletin board with what they're practicing or what they're mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. learning. Um, yes. So families can kind of connect play with learning, but we could do it here too. And we could just have like today, Eric needed, to yes. run so we rearrange right. this space and and that could be a whole different display that a, probably parents aren't going to be used to seeing <laughs> but could be very sort of validating and and calming and educational for all the families to see i think that would be an excellent approach you know especially if you if the parent brings a child in and they're running down the hallway that's an indication that you know the hallway says run like hell yeah. <laughs> and I think your parents saw that, that we recognize that and, and this is what we provide. Yeah. Um, it's less looking at it in terms of a negative practice yeah. and more of a, a positive practice. Yeah. I, I had um, one student ask this summer when we were talking about environments um, and invitations in the environment and things like that. Um, so now she's like, so now this is what I want to do. I want I, you know, I'm thinking differently about my environment now. I want to make some changes, but I've got three other teachers that aren't going to, you know, how do I educate my other teachers essentially about why I'm doing this? And I said, well, just talk about it. When you make a yeah. change, say, here's why I did it. Or when everybody's having that vent session about that child who's, um, you know, too active or not participating or whatever, just say, I wonder if we made this change, if that would, you know, just mm -hmm. those little it doesn't have to be all or nothing for everybody. Right. Um, if we start to take some of those steps and start to talk to each other about those steps, um, I think that's the most authentic way to try and get everybody working in the same direction. Because it's easy, Heather, to get sucked into the negative. Oh, it's so easy. Um, and, and I think you indicated well is the fact that if we shift it, to, okay, this is what really bothers you. What can we try to help the child um, do what they're good at? Uh -huh. Would shift the mindset from that negative sucking kind of uh, <laughs> feeling into, all right, we're going to give this a try. Yeah. And see, and see what happens. Yeah. This just makes me really want to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go. I want to go play with some active children. Yeah. <laughs>
go to a concert. <laughs> go to a concert. <laughs> I can't really do that right now either. Right, but. I know. I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, someday we'll be out, right? There's yeah. there's some yes. someday we'll come out on the other side of all of this. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for that conversation. That was um that was a one of those great I now I'm failing, but uh where I was challenged all along the way of the conversation. Like I came in <laughs> thinking I knew what I wanted to to rant about. And then you made me think about things. So thanks. <laughs> it's a great topic and it's one that I think people probably need to talk about more. I think so too. Yeah. 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 And um uh and can you imagine running a whole class in guidance and discipline just on the topic of ADHD? Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about that. I thought about that a lot in the class I did that um, everything we talked about could have been easily. Yes. A full, a full yes. Just about, yeah. Um, maybe someday when we run the world, Dan, we'll change that. Hey, that'd be good. Yes. <laughs> so just put that in your, in your book for future use. Right. Um, all right. Well, thank you again, Dan. I'm just going to keep rambling if I don't hit stop on this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Heather, for having me again. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Oh, I interrupted you. What? I said, thanks for having me again. Oh, that. Okay, sure. My pleasure. Anytime. Um, all right. We're going we're gonna to push stop now. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.